Thanks for listening to the Roman Circus Podcast, a weekly dive into death-defying discussions of Catholic culture, tradition, and history. I'm Matt Baker, and with me, as always, is Zach, the man, the myth, the Mabry. Zach, how are you, my friend? I'm good. I'm very good. I've had a fun week. If you've had a fun week, you can tweet us at Roman Circus Pod. I'm at Hey, it's Matt Baker. Zach is at Zach Mabry, Z-A-C Mabry. Email us, podcast at romancircusblog.com. Find us on iTunes where you can rate and review us if you want. You can also find us on Podbean, Stitcher, and Google Play, and most anywhere podcasts are. Zach, we have a fun interview coming up here in a couple minutes with the New York Post and Catholic Herald's own Sorab Amari, which will be a blast. It'll be fun to talk to him. We've never chatted with him before. Always like having new people come on the show. Yes, and I'm excited to ask him some questions about his book. I've I've enjoyed I've enjoyed reading it, and um, yeah, I mean, I think once we get a chance to talk to him, I imagine everyone will want to go out and buy it. Uh, when does it come out, Matt? Uh, Zach, if you're listening to this podcast, it is out right now. Right now? Yeah. On on Amazon? It's I, I think it's available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever books are sold. What about Barnes & Noble? Oh, yeah, probably Barnes & Noble, too. Just kidding. Trying to do a good job, you know, promoting the book, because it, it is very good, and I'm, I'm excited to get to chat with him about it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, before we get into that, we had a podcast last week about all things politics, and I just, I mean, we got a little feedback and uh, wanted to kind of circle back around for a couple minutes on that. Did you, is there anything that you thought about since our last recording, Zach, that you wanted to update on? Or my my father, big fa- uh, friend of the show and fan of the show, my dad, he kind of brought up the idea of propositions being a little more black and white as far as voting because we had we didn't actually talk about that and i don't know if it was necessarily in the sphere of what we were talking about but um if you listened and we were talking about voting and non-voting uh propositions seem uh more important than we probably let on that's and so by proposition obviously you're talking about like if there's an issue and you're basically voting yes or no on it right yeah the thing about those though is that um I mean, you can even see it with Brexit. Obviously, Brexit's very controversial, but there's this big movement to do another referendum. So mm-hmm. the the thing about, you know, everyone's like, oh, democracy, and we're going to do propositions and referendums. Uh, if the majority gets it wrong, quote unquote, uh, they'll just revote until they get it. Or, I mean, you can look at, I mean, again, whatever your opinion on the matter is, look at Prop 8 in California. That's what I was um, going to bring Californians up. Californians yeah. came out, yeah, and then the court shot it down. So it, there's, it, it's not... Yes, I do think that when there's propositions and you have a stance one way or the other, there is a better shot of just going ahead and voting for it, unlike when you get some politicians and you can't really trust what they're going to do. But then it's not like the results of a referendum or a proposition uh, haven't been you know, disregarded before. And so you kind of just kind of look at the the facade of democracy and, and kind of make make some decisions about it the facade of democracy that's i'm gonna put that on your tombstone amazing uh, <laughs> all right yeah that was anything else i just wanted to 
circle back around very briefly. Um, no, I mean, it was a fun episode. And then afterwards I was like, man, I, I don't know if we should have done that, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> just cause like, I don't know. I mean, politics is such an, so much of it's theater and, um, you can like create conflicts between people who you mostly agree with right. over issues that, that don't matter that much. Yeah. Um, so, but it was fun talking about that and, um, you know, and it also the, uh, the government's back up, but let everybody know. Um, government's back, turned back on. Okay. Someone, un- it was unplugged. Someone walked in and discovered it had been unplugged and they plugged it right back in for at least three well, more weeks. Fun fact. Um, I was trying to work with the IRS, the internal revenue service on some stuff for my, uh, clients for my side business. And, uh, the, they will answer the phone and they will do anything that you can do over the phone during the shutdown, but their fax machines are off. And that's the only way that you can send something to them except through mail to where they get it instantly. Like while you're on the phone with them is through fax. And I was like, okay, I can fax this to you. And they're like, Oh, our faxes are off. Sorry. (laughs) So I had to, I had to call, I had to let my client know. I'm like, I'm very sorry. I, I did finally get through to the IRS. Um, despite the hold times because they're short staffed and the result is I can't fax them what we need to give them. So we're just going to wait till the shutdown ends or mail it and figure out which one's going to be faster. You're, you're but, just uh, like, I am sorry to report that it is 2019 and I cannot help you because of a fax machine. I know. That's what's funny. It's like, I, the only reason I have a fax number and I, I mean, I have a digital fax, so it, it's like through, it's an online thing. I don't actually have a fax machine sitting here, but the right. only reason I have that and pay for that is because the IRS, you can either fax things to them or mail things to them, but there's no other way to get evidence, you know, documents in front of them, um, besides that. And so got to have it. So yeah, send me a fax, 972-905-1099. That's the first phone number we've given away on this podcast. All right. That's a... Wait, and can I plug, can I give, can I give a totally shameless plug for myself? Yeah, sure. Go for it. Well, it, it is tax season. And um, I prepare taxes as a side project, and I like to take excellent care of my clients. And so, any of you guys are listeners, and you uh, want me to be your 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 accountant this year and support you this tax season, you're tired of you know sifting through W twos and ten ninety nine C ten ninety five As and all that kind of stuff, and you uh, you want to have it handled for you and, and get some good good advice in the process. Uh, you know, give me a shout uh, if you mention the podcast. I'll give you. Um, Ten dollars off. Hey, hey! Look at that. That was a great ad read, Zach. You're good at those. I know. Isn't that terrible? I'm like Ben Shapiro now. Well, this is fun. What's really fun too is not doing your own taxes. By the way, yeah. Just kidding. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> All right. I think that's good. Let's uh, let's get into that interview. Let's bring him on. All right, Zach. As promised, we have another great interview. It is the op-ed editor for the New York Post contributing editor for the Catholic Herald and author of From Fire by Water, My Journey to the Catholic Faith, which is out today, Sorab Amari. Sorab, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, one thing, now I'm, I'm feeling kind of left out because there are two contributing editors for the Catholic Herald on this podcast, and uh, I'm the only one who isn't. 
it's an English invasion, even though neither neither of us is actually English. Yeah, does it does yeah. it dampen the prestige a little knowing you have to share an office with Zach, the contributing editor office at the Catholic Herald magazine? Yeah, we um you know, normally we don't speak when we when we're in this uh this alleged office where all of the contributors go every day we have a morning uh, we have a morning um, conference every morning where we scheme how to how to rile up uh, the Catholic online world oh yeah no that, <laughs> that, that that's the meeting I want to be a part of um, there it is actually if two of us are gathered even just like electronically like we are now um, there's like a buzzer that goes off and just notifies Damien Thompson <laughs> <laughs> So, so hi, Damien, if you're listening. Okay, good. Um, all right, so the first thing that popped into our heads with the with the memoir is you're not you're not an old man by any means. You are still quite young, and memoirs always seem like an old man's game. Uh, was there any was there any hesitance, or how are you feeling now that the book is actually out? That um, are you excited or was there any, cause you put a lot of, I mean, you put a lot of your life in there. Is, was there any, were you worried about, because as Zach put it, and I'm sorry to steal yeah, your you thunder, Zach. Yourself, man. Yeah. You docked yourself. Uh, that's exactly right. You know, that's a really good question because, um, when I started writing the book, I only thought of it as a sort of, from a, kind of craft perspective like I want to tell a story and I want to tell it well with a clear beginning middle and an end and evocative prose and you know um, ideas and arguments that make sense blah 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 and I, I, I didn't think about the self-disclosure aspect until maybe a month ago when you know the it showed up on Amazon and you know reviews started to come out and I suddenly to be honest, there is an element of anxiety over. I mean, I think I think that all the the the, the self disclosure, including some pretty personal stuff, is it serves the purpose of the book. It's not um, lurid or meant to be, um, I don't know, narcissistically uh, exposing bits of um, you know my own lousiness in the past and so forth. But right. it all serves the purpose of you know that ultimately leads to my baptism and have big received into the church still there yeah there's a there's a bit of anxiety about the age thing i didn't feel bad or i didn't worry so much because you know, it's not a general autobiography i don't think any 30 something year old I'm, I'm about to turn 34 any 34 year old should write a, a general autobiography but this is not that it's a you know it's tightly crafted memoir and it only touches on those aspects of my life that ultimately led me to my becoming a catholic but not it's not a general autobiography. It would be really silly for a 34-year-old to write a general autobiography. <laughs> yeah. Well, well but... and I, I think with the uh, the age thing, the, I think the bigger question is like, um, you know, some people who will write more personal works towards the end of their lives or careers, like you still have, you know, at least the second half of your career ahead of you. So that's where I was thinking it was interesting just because, you know, you're, you've made your story very public, like not to draw comparisons, but I, I think St. Augustine wrote confessions like at the end of his life, um, you know, not to compare the two. And obviously that was much more like full life biography, but that was where I thought was interesting is it's like, this is out there. And like, you know, anyone you work with in the future, you know, will have read it or at least, you know, read the, uh, like the, you know, buzzing pieces of it. 
Yeah, and it's something to, I guess, to contend with. I ultimately, I, mean, I think it's great. I think it's cool. I just think it takes like a certain amount of um, courage to do that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, like I said, when I was doing it, I, I only cared about it from a kind of storytelling point of view, and um, also telling this thing that mattered to me a lot. I mean, it's a re- kind of a sea change where no one who, most of the people who knew me. You know, when I suddenly came out as, oh, by the way, I'm converting um, to Catholicism, we're like, the what? Um, <laughs> and so I then, and, and then they flooded me with lots of questions that I wasn't even prepared to answer yet. And so there was this urge of sort of explaining myself to, to A, make it clear that unlike what a lot of um, Christian and Catholic media outlets initially gathered, it wasn't as if I was praying to Allah five times a day. And then suddenly, you know, when this French priest, Father Hamel, gets martyred by two Islamist terrorists in France, that's the day I announced. But it wasn't as if that single act had suddenly turned me into a Catholic from a full-believing Muslim, that in fact it was a much longer story that I mostly was really an unbeliever. And it took years for me to even come to believe in, first of all, a God, and then a personal God, and then the God of the Bible, and the God of the Bible as he appears in the Catholic Church, or is present in the Catholic Church. Um, so I wanted to clarify all that, and that was the goal. Um, well, you, so, so yeah, you mentioned like Team Jesus and Team Muhammad, and that you weren't you weren't trying to like, you know, basically you said what score points for Team Jesus against Team Muhammad, but you had you had been spending, you know, a very long time coming to this conclusion, and it, it's not something that can kind of fit tightly into like a. Um, you know, a news brief of like, you know, devout, super Muslim, you know, renounces Islam, joins the Franciscans, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it wasn't like that. And yet that's sort of how a lot of people were interpreting it. So mm-hmm. ultimately I decided to write the book to set the, set the record straight, uh, as it were. And it was worth it to me to do some of that self-disclosure that's in the book to have that explanation out there. It is sort of very, you know, in my own voice, as clearly as I could tell it, why I concluded that the, the Catholic Church offers the fullness of truth. Um, so, you know, the awkwardness of meeting someone who may have already read my bio and know certain things about me, oh well. I mean, ultimately I did a cost-benefit analysis and decided it was worth it. Nice. Yeah, sorry to hit you with a tough question right off the bat. Like, no, no, it's, it's a very good I question. It's something I think about. It's something I think about. So one thing that I I really liked the character of young Sorab in this in this piece. Like he. So what? Okay, so you said like we we had talked a little, and you weren't you grew up Muslim, but you're you weren't like a devout practicing Muslim. In fact, you, your family just kind of as you put it in the book, prayed to anything. They were like, basically, if it had spiritual value, it was it was being prayed in front of, or like prayed to. And um, But none of it taken too seriously either. You right. Know, sort of like. <laughs> right, for sure. But then, Which in, and we're familiar with that as far as Christianity goes, like here in the States. Like we're used to people that are like, you know, vaguely um, Christian, but then, you know, they, they it's just sort of a cultural thing. We don't, run into a lot of like casual like oh, i'm kind of muslim here in the states like usually people are either 
you know, devoutly Muslim or they've just, you know, they're just not Muslim. So it's, uh, I think that's probably part of where it gets lost in translation is that we're just not quite as familiar with, with like cultural Muslim. Cultural Islam. Yeah. Yeah. So, and one thing that all, it kind of, it all kind of built on each other to portray this idea of, um, and obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but there was, you, you, you lashed out and you became a rebellious teen, but I think that was all built upon the authority in your life. Like you just, there was no strong sense of authority and you, you grew up kind of looking at it because you were a very smart child and you grew up kind of looking at everything and you grew up seeing this lack of this devout faith. And then even uh, you talk about the, the actual police authority in Iran was like, they were strict unless you paid them off. And then the parental authority like wanted to have fun, but then they would cave to the, they would like cave to the police authority. So like this whole thing of, there was just a structure of um, just an authority that you didn't trust to where at some point you just gave in and you just didn't trust in any authority at all. Even that being God um, to where you would tempt God, you would curse God to like the classic, I, I these I don't think these were your words, but something similar like God, if I'm going to curse you, and if you're angry with me, send a lightning bolt to know on me to know you're really upset, like things like that, to where it just became that no authority was good enough because you didn't trust any of it. Am I kind of does that? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, um, you know, in in 1979, the Iranian Revolution happened, and. Yeah, it was premised on the idea that that you know Iran could reach its fullest glory by restoring Shiism, um, the Shiite Islamic faith, to a supreme status in society. Um, and lots of other people supported the revolution. My own family supported the revolution for kind of nationalistic reasons, not having really thought about what it would mean to have a quote unquote Islamic republic. Um, and they almost instantly came to regret it. Uh, but so, so growing up, I think as you, as you rightly described it, I had this constant tension between, you know, God and the sense that he's, he's lots of laws, you know, in Islam, God really is a sort of, an, you know, an abstract a metaphysical plane of the universe who has revealed himself purely through law, who then has delineated every element of life, has a sort of legal component to it, but he's not a, he's not your companion, he's not a person. Sure. Um, in the way, and this God, in some ways, even as I was growing up in this very secular milieu in Iran, nevertheless, as I write in the book, there are elements of it that moved me. This sort of idea of self-sacrifice, mm-hmm. which the, the Shiites have with their martyrs, especially the third one, who is uh, the third sort of in a series of, of the descendants of the Prophet Muhammad, whom Shiites revere and Sunni Muslims don't. You know, he you know, faced down an army of 30,000 with his own retinue of 72 companions and died. And that idea of him, you know, giving it the last for... Um, for the truth was weirdly moving to me. So that was the one aspect of Islam that I grasped onto and which actually had, would then play a role in my ultimate faith journey towards Christianity and Catholicism. But 
there are other aspects, like you mentioned, where the, the this god uh, required a police state to enforce his whims, and that police state was actually weirdly actually corruptible and easily bribed. So yeah. it was true that you could get flogged for drinking alcohol in Iran, but plenty of people didn't, and the way you got away with it was bri- by, by bribing the morality police. So that made me think that if that's God, on the one hand, you know, absolute law, absolute political dominion, on the other hand, kind of sneaky and his agents are willing to be bribed away for to overlook your transgressions, then it's a joke and I don't have nothing to do with it. And, and then, as you say, that eventually translated into when I moved to the U.S., a continual rebellion against against all authority, which isn't atypical for teenagers. Sure, sure. Well, so one of the things along that line, and I sent, I'm, I'm going to read a small, just a few sentences that I instantly sent to Zach that go, it goes along with what you were just saying that I found interesting. Living in an Islamic theocracy where God appears in the form of floggings and judicial amputations, scowling ayatollahs and secret police, has a way of souring one on things divine. Years later, I read a wise young Iranian dissident who argued that if the Islamic Republic collapsed one day, it would leave behind the world's largest community of atheists. This is a perfectly plausible theory. I I read that, and I, I... I, like I said, I instantly sent to Zach. I was like, wow, this is, I mean, I never thought of it that way. But uh, if there's no, if I guess if there's no foundation in a loving God, then if that God is ripped from you and turned out turns out to be false, why would you put your trust in any God in general after that? And it, it would just struck me when I read that. Yeah, I mean, that's right. Um, it. There's very, as I say in the book, there's very little room for, for, for reason, for, for love, for mercy. You know, it's like uh, God says no alcohol, and where Islam rules, where it's in a majority religion, it, its norms are enforced, which means if you drink, you'll be flogged, and if you're caught again, you'll be flogged more, and then if you're caught the fourth time, you'll be, you know, have XYZ limbs chopped up or whatever it might be. <laughs> right. Um, that is how you encounter God as legal and political dominion, um, and and I and I rejected that, um, and so did my parents. But but we still, I mean, on the other in the other on the other hand, there was still a longing for for meaning and for truth that I that was unfulfilled for me, and so I went through this long process of toying with various ideologies um Mm -hmm. and um but in in, yeah again as i argue in the book that in those what i sought in for example marxism when i became a full-on marxist in late high school and then into my undergraduate years was still in a way was god right so that um there's no position of being fully without god because whatever Whatever other ideology ends up you adapt adopt ends up being a substitute god. So Marxism has this deterministic idea of that history has an inner logic that plays itself out through class struggle, and it intensifies until globally there's you know uh, a, a worldwide revolution that establishes 
a classless utopia and and in a way history wipes every tear and and uh you know and, and the agent of this of this transformation is the revolutionary party which sort of through self-sacrifice and sort of spectacular violence uh redeems history and all of its previous injustices so that's a sort of deeply religious idea um and yeah I mean, its form is religion, even if its substance is godless. Yeah, I mean, to add to that, like, when I, because, I mean, I have never been an actual Marxist, but I've always been fascinating in reading um, different things that relate to it. And when I came across kind of the the belief that, okay, marriage was created because men needed a way to pass their property on to other men, and so to do that, they had to have, you know, a, a wife that they had to have women kind of controlled because they couldn't produce offspring without women. And, you know, I mean, reliably. Um, and that that's where monogamy came from was this desire of men to, like, be able to pass on property. And I just remember thinking, like, this is such an Adam and Eve type story. Like, it, it's it, it just yeah. seems like such a religious myth of, like, when did they think that this happened? Um, there was like some meeting of like okay guys we've got to figure this out none of us know how to pass on our property i have i have a few suggestions yeah no that's right and and, you know and it's a very impoverished now we're kind of getting to in terms of my story getting a little further ahead but you know uh, this idea that everything is determined first by the material order of things so that people don't believe what they believe because it's true or false, but because of the material circumstances. And and it's not as if material circumstances and, and economic, the way societies produce things affects how people think. That's There's no doubt about that. Um, but to be so absolute about it and just suggest that there's no idea that is truth in and of itself, that everything is always bound up with your class interests and how society produces things, these very sort of reductive impoverished worldview and uh, in my case you know i really went on full steam ahead into it um made for an impoverished moral life as well yeah it all right it all works well and that's what you talked about how you were you kind of talked about how you were you were more turning your back on like nietzsche than you were muhammad um and you kind of look at like you know the influence that that Nietzsche's had for, you know, years and, and how that plays into so much of it's just the material, the aesthetic, you know, all that. And it's interesting. So as far as looking back, I mean, obviously we don't, it's there. I don't like the, well, what would you change question? Because you really can't change anything because it happened. But now like, as far as your younger self, like you, you, you talk about having a faux maturity and a faux eloquence that you could use to kind of get by. Like it would, it would make you appear smarter or it actually would win you allies in school and things like this. But, uh, all of this stuff, how one, one thing I I like about conversion stories is taking your previous life and, uh, you know, either using it in your, your Catholic life or like, staying away from those certain elements. So how do you fight going back to things like that now that you're in your thirties? You know what I'm trying to say as far as like yeah. trying to, you know, trying to fit in by faking things or like, do you ever feel self-conscious about 
old young Sorab popping up in these situations? That's a really, really good question. Um, and it's a powerful question. And, and the bottom line is, um, he does. He absolutely does. I mean, right. you know, um, the, 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 the grace and the, and the, the power of the sacraments of, of baptism and confirmation don't instantly make you a saint as, as we all know. Um, Right. It actually, uh, in some respects, makes things tougher because now you know what you have and you know these sacraments. So you have to be more inclined to uh, treat them with the utmost respect. And you're held accountable for things you yes. weren't before. Yes. I mean, um, you know, St. Peter in his in his letters uh, has some pretty harsh words for people who, you know, trade in the the inheritance that they have as, as new, you know, Christians for various messes of pottage. Um, and those words are pretty kind of terrifying. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, you know, honestly, I, he definitely pops up, he, you know, that urge, for example, to be kind of in some ways the loudish Roman centurion who persecutes our Lord, that, that is always a part of, you know, and no one, um, as Solzhenitsyn famously says, you know, everyone everyone has a part of them that would be willing to create the gulag, you know, to be a camp guard in the gulag and be cruel. Sure. Um, uh, and no one wants oh, yeah. to rip, rip a piece of his own heart out. Um, so that's, that's still there. And, you know, I, it takes that work. I mean, it takes, I have a spiritual director. I try to make really frequent use of the sacrament of confession. Um, I, I rely a lot on, on the prayer to St. Michael, um, in, in mm -hmm. temptation, uh, and generally just feel, uh, a lot more guilty than I used to. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. That's, that's healthy. Guilt. It's funny. People don't realize that like, so if guilt causes you to not do things that would be much, that would be harmful, then I mean it's a good thing. Like it, it would just be like saying if you don't touch the a hot pan because you're afraid of it. It's like okay, well, you know, yeah, it's hot. You shouldn't be afraid. I mean, there's higher reasons to avoid something than guilt. But I mean, if if it's sparing you pain, you know, I mean, if guilt's keeping you out of confession, if guilt's you know making you think, oh, I've I've done this and that's and that's such and a bad thing that I saying. that I can never be. Yes, right. that, that's, that's that's bad. That's, that's guilt pushed to the to the a excess basically to its excess yeah, yeah. exactly that's yeah. right that's and right. i mean but it could be other... like a psychological situation of like catastrophe you know i mean certain times yeah like obviously you know setting that aside most of guilt is, is a good thing we support guilt here in the, <laughs> from the podcast. but but you know i mean we are we are bombarded in a in a society that's geared towards kind of materialistic well-being you know, I think Pope Benedict called, calls it the society of well-being. It's this sort of, you know, rationalistic, liberal market-type democracies. You get so many messages like that, you know, that, that you, you deserve this, you know, uh, thing, whatever, however sinful or just sort of indulgent it might be. Or on, on contrary, just, just you know, don't, don't feel guilty <laughs> is, the, is the message that I think we, we often receive. So... Um, and so it's very, I think it's very wise that 
that things that are good for you can can feel bad and uh yeah that the pain is healthy yeah i always think about with that stuff because like i'm a convert as well and uh i always think of lot's wife like looks back at gamora turns into a pillar of salt and Mm -hmm. and i will say that every time i've i've like because i've had these look back moments and it it does it's always it's always that pillar of salt thing you know it anything from like you know friends i had before i converted that were you know tolerant of kind of the change in my mindset and attitude and lifestyle and then when i kind of did my look back and wanted to get back in with them and things um it kind of blew the top off that situation. Like anytime I've ever looked back, it's been a disaster. And I, so, I always so think back true. Like, wow. That that is that is so absolutely true. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity has this. It's like, you know, whatever you had held on to, whatever vice you'd held on to, you know, uh, you all. Okay, for me, I'll I'll be much more frank than this. Okay, for me, there was a period in my let's say college years and immediate post college years where there was like this. You know, we would get together with a few buddies and have more than too much to drink or like smoke a bowl or whatever and just sort of kind of solve the world, you know, just sort of, and and it was all the conversations. If you put them together, it was piles and piles of nonsense and none of it was memorable. (laughs) No true insight was ever gained. Right. But there's a part of me that always wants to like recreate that like if if this time if i get together with my uh-huh, uh-huh. you know buddy here and we're, we're gonna have far too much to drink and just recreate that magical moment which wasn't magical which was sort of slurring garbage <laughs> right <laughs> and right and so that's the look back that's that's lot's wife that's that's a very profound way to put it <clears throat> you hear that zach you're profound yeah, I, I not that I, I try and i know not to like so to build kind of on what you said, and this obviously has nothing to do with the book, but we, my friends and I, a couple times recorded when our friends would do this kind of stuff, the conversations, and then we would play them back in a different state of mind. And I, I'm telling you, like, no, the world was not solved, but it felt like it. But yeah, no, um, <laughs> you just mostly cringe. Yeah, but the thing is, is once you've once you've left that, you really just can't you you can't go back to it. I mean, people again like they'll they'll tolerate the change and and just kind of like look over it but then once you try to like go back on it it, it does take everything to a different level so like yeah I, I i definitely understand that i'm always worried i'm gonna wake up and be pagan zach again pagan zach <laughs> yeah that was my like i, I remember thinking like because i hadn't really had cable tv at any point after my conversion um and i was gonna get you know streaming cable I just remember thinking, like, what if? Oh, I mean, I used to watch so much TV before I converted. What if somehow I'm like back where I was before all that? Like, I mean, there was a. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I kind of had to work with some spiritual direction on that because there was like any engagement with with things from my past life, even just you know benign things like television. I was like, eh, mm-hmm. this could be the the undoing of of all this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of TV, Zach. You could get. You could get holed up and come out a week later and not know where you've been. But uh, well, it's funny. I was more worried about the commercials. I was like, honestly, oh. you know, TV's got a lot of stuff we should look away from. But then it's got all this stuff that's just materialistic, vapid, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I think I need a new phone, or I, yeah, I, you know, I have this job. I should have a Lexus, and um, <laughs> you know, 
but so one thing I want to ask, Laura, so you, you talked about like we earlier in the conversation about the Islamic Republic and and how, you know, when you saw some of the that it could be um, that could be kind of perverted, that people could you know do the wrong thing when they have that authority. Obviously, 2018 was a pretty wild year for the, the church's government. Um, and, you know, with the bishops and the cardinals and, and all the scandals, how do you kind of delineate the two? And how do you say, no, well, here's why, you, does that make sense what I'm asking? Like, here's the yeah, difference. Yeah, yeah, when... that they had, um, at least in the ecclesial realm that we entrust our pastors uh, with a great deal of authority. Um, and some of them are... Uh, have been shown to be corrupt. Um, I guess. Yeah, I mean, we've all had to find a way to to come to grips with that. I was just wondering, since you had sort of seen corruption in in your pre-Catholic life, like how you were able to sort of, um, I don't know, not see past it, but how you're able to, you kind of have to factor it into your understanding of the church. And so, if there's anything you wanted to say on that, yeah, I mean, I would say that, um, you know, I. I've traveled a, a lot and seen a lot of the world, including my my native land, to which I haven't returned since I left when I was 13, 14, but much else as well. And so I have, um, you know, I, I've always had a kind of a cynical nature of view of human nature, including including my own nature, but everyone else as well. And I don't think that that, um, uh, that's some degree of that healthy cynicism that, that you know, that were fallen uh, is contradictory to the Christian worldview. I mean, I think the Christian worldview is pretty, um, pretty pessimistic about human nature by, uh, of itself w- without grace. Um, and so, and that's a reality. Um, yeah. In, in the church as well. Our priest, our priest would always remind us, he's like, all right, whatever sin it is that disgusts you, whatever it is that you're seeing people do or hearing about, realize that it, you are capable of it without grace and it, it doesn't matter what it is even if it's just appalling to you that that absent grace you're completely capable of committing that same sin or worse i also i also want to but one note about all this is that um again you mentioned how have you grown or how have you what's been like post post baptism the story that you that where, where the book stopped at the very at the very end so what what's since then um, I mean, I think when I first came in, I thought I had read, you know, a lot of the important books, and I could, I could, I could pray to, I could say the uh, the, the the Apostles' Creed in Latin from memory, you know, and blah blah blah, and therefore, I, well, no, but that I can then, you know, that that little bit, which I mean, obviously the library of of Catholic knowledge is infinite and it's sort of mind-boggling but that's the sort of vanity of the intellectual where i was like oh now i'm, I'm gonna weigh into these big ecclesial debates and and uh you know the, this cardinal is right and that cardinal and and i've stopped doing that now i mean that's part of it is is that i've realized no i'm not a theologian mm-hmm. um i you know i i trust pope francis as the sort of uh, living visible principle of of catholic unity and and as uh, as Peter, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get into theological debates now. Cover ups and so forth, which is like what happened with McCarrick. That's something that's within my vocation, and I can serve the church as a journalist by 
asking questions, being like, why did so-and-so say that they knew nothing when they turned out that they, they did, in fact, know certain things? Right. That's a different set of questions. But I'm, I'm not going to... I'm not more Catholic than the Pope, and I'm going to trust him on things like, you know, <laughs> theology. Well, that that kind of right. comes with being that that comes with the zeal of a convert, right? It it takes a little bit to kind of step back and realize how new you are to the faith and how how things kind of go, how we do things around here, for lack of a better phrase, like it. But that's what yeah. so many people admire about converts is all the zeal they bring and how passionate they are. But at some point uh, it is very important to take a step back and realize that uh, the, you're just one of many and, and we have a hierarchy in how we do things, but you're right. As far as, as far as a journalist, there are some very good things you can do on the front as far as McCarrick. But the, right. um, and very much at the invitation of the Holy father. I mean, he, yeah, he, he did. was very clear in the, the uh, press conference after he was in Ireland that he was asking journalists to to do to get to work on this. So, I mean, that's where I think, you know, that's 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 serving Peter. And, uh, you know, as far as the convert zeal, yeah, it's, I think that it, I've now come to see how that can be that it has some welcome dimensions, but it also has some. Um, it things to watch for, and, and the the priest, it was this English priest who received me into the church, um, you know, would always kind of say, because I would send him my articles about the church and this and that, and he would always sort of just say, like, he would be pretty welcoming, but he would also also say, um, you know, my boy, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, um, <laughs> and uh, that was that was pretty good advice that I've only beginning to fully appreciate now, a couple of years into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was that, um, I don't know if it was a letter or an article that came out, I think it was a year ago, about converts and how they kind of need to chill. And it was from, like, the kind of, uh, you know, I, I guess I would call them, like, the slimier types in Rome, and not people that were normally uh, fans of them necessarily here. Um, and then there was this backlash to it about, oh, no, com-. and I, I just remember reading it being like, well, yeah, there's some truth to this, like, I came into the church and yeah, pretty quickly had some, some strong opinions and, you know, yeah. you start to recognize like the Martin Luther in you at some point, like you have to sort yes. of see that, like just, yes. that, like some of his complaints were valid, but the, the overall nature of, of his approach was not. And that's where you, you can't sit there and let these particulars build up and that, you know, yeah. And it's like, you know, the sword and it also, it just a little bit of, docility before the pope so you know he there was like this one bit of mischaracterized footage where he was speaking to a youth group and he said um he didn't give the traditional blessing right he sort of gave a more ecumenical blessing and then it turned out that he had earlier gave the traditional it's a pontifical blessing but immediately people say like see see he does he, he's ashamed of catholicism it's like <sighs> you know that was the kind of moment where i'm like you know no i'm not gonna I'm going to try to discipline that that part of myself that that um, reflexively distrusts the vicar of Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, I'm seeing it as like a two-step process where people are, are happy. People seem to grasp step one, but not step two. And, and so what I would say, step one is you do sort of have to separate the man from the office and think about the office and how important the papacy is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then step two, you have to realize that uh, there's no – it's impossible on a – 
practical level to actually separate the man from the office. So you have to just work that out. But I mean, once you figure out how important the office is, step two is to recognize that there's no, I mean, you can't meet the Holy Father and say, I'm only genuflecting to your office or, you know, I'm only <laughs> mm-hmm. praying for mm-hmm. your office mm-hmm. his intentions. Mm-hmm. Like, they're, I mean, it's an incarnational faith. Like at the end of the day, there's a person that occupies the office and there's just no way to separate your treatment of him from the treatment of the office on, on a practical level. At least that's what I've kind of thought about later. I agree. I agree. So kind of along those lines, um, where now today, as far as where you're at, you know, in your life was, is there anything that, what's the thing about Catholicism that surprised you the most coming into it that you didn't know you were getting into? Uh, I mean, I'm sure you obviously had a good idea of the tenets of the faith and a lot of the the big stuff, but uh, uh, are there things like devotions or things along those lines that you didn't really have a good understanding of that you're very happy you found now? Or is there something, something that kind of surprised you about Catholicism? Yeah, I would say I was aware of it and I knew it was there, but the communion of the saints um, is something that, um, and just devotion to the saints and the relics and so forth, which I've, I've come to love. Sure. Um, but I did, I, yeah, I didn't see the sort of centrality of it. Obviously it's in the creed, um, uh, in the apostles creed, but, um, still I quite, you know, you, you might have some vague intellectual sense of something and not know that it would in practice it looks like, but now I'm, you know, I'm delighted by it. I love sort of the daily sort of liturgical calendar that introduces you to a, to a new saint today. On weekdays, I often go to mass at um, St. Patrick's because it's close to the office. And uh, there's one priest who just does a little mini, you know, because it's a daily mass and people are very, I'm very much in a hurry. So, right. you know, just like three minutes introduction to the Pope, uh, to the, to the saint of the day, you know, he did this and that. And he's sort of like, ah, okay. Like, you know, um, I didn't know that. And, and it's, and it's this, 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 this holy, wonderful person who uh, is praying for me up there. Um, so that's, I guess, that would be it. I, I have no sense of how deep the community of the saints are in, and, and, and also this sort of um, the this tripartite structure of of uh, the church up there, the church down here below, and then the church in uh, in purgatory. Have we're all linked laterally and, and horizontally and in every way. It's, it's all wonderful, but you, you don't understand it until you're fully in. Yeah, and I think you even once you're fully in, it takes still there's years years to fully understand it, which is so great about the, the faith is that you really never stop learning. And there's always, there's always something in the next book, and there's always something in the next encyclical that you didn't know, and it, it just kind of makes it for a very involved faith. But, Amen. Uh, yeah. All right. All right. So we've uh, we've talked about religion, yeah. um, philosophy, politics. You know, global global power struggles. But let's get into the real controversy. I'm which glad is, you're going there, Zach. Which is Twitter.com. <laughs> <laughs> so you're 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 an active tweeter. Or Too obviously. active. Too active. too active. Everybody is. I know. We all joke. Somebody after the the like awkward Ben Shapiro comment at March for Life, someone's like, 
if you could go back in time and kill baby Twitter, would you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. I was like, oh, that's a good thought. Oh, that's a good. Well, polls show that the majority of Americans, some Pew studies shows the majority of Americans regret the fact that social media were invented. That if they could, they would sort of uninvent it now. <laughs> so, oh wow! Yeah, I'm sure I... that's the only sane stance. The only sane uh, stance? Think. Yeah, I mean, like. I mean, I love Twitter, but at the same time, I don't know. It probably would be better if this stuff didn't exist. Like a lot of it's people, it's toxic. It's waste, waste so much time. I mean, yeah. Like yeah. I feel like, I mean, the I just have to wonder how many people are, you know, having to go to therapy or or take medication because of things that wouldn't be a factor if you got rid of the social media pressure. I don't know. Yeah, I, just got... I say that, and it's like I've got every network up on my screen as i'm talking i'm gonna block you for saying that <laughs> yeah <laughs> well we so we no. we uh we like to be involved in catholic twitter and and we try and make the podcast twitter account the world's most active catholic twitter podcast account for better or worse um but we see like it, it's tough because we we see we always see our our pals fighting on the thing and we never know why we're fighting who or who we're supposed to be fighting or cheering for. And it just, sometimes it's just a giant mess. And I, uh, and it kind of makes me sad because at the end of the day, we all have the same goal in mind, which is to get each other to heaven. Or at least I thought, I thought we did, you know, but it, uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's the nature of the medium, honestly. And, mm -hmm. um, by the way, there's much that's fascinating about, Catholic Twitter in the sense that, you know, you could be, everyone else is tweeting about Kanye or whatever the most recent person who has been deemed to be worthy of being utterly destroyed for some misstep. Um, you know, you turn to Catholic Twitter and, and there's sort of deep, Thomistic discussion about the intersection of, um, you know, faith and public life and, and uh, the common good. And so that's very refreshing in that sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, as, as you well know, I've had my, I've had my tussles with various corners of the, of Catholic Twitter. And uh, I don't know. I, the only thing I would say is that um, it just, I, I wish there was some way to, pause when these things spiral and people start to argue very vehemently and say let's let's grab a drink i think you know or let's let's get together and and sometimes i do actually and that, that that's happened as well in other words there's been uh priests let's say um who are writers and i've had arguments with them on twitter and then you know we've said let's let's grab a meal and then and that you meet the person and it's just a totally melts all that sort of hostility melts away and you're like hey you know fellow catholic um a good man a good priest and everything changes but in some cases that's not possible and you turn to the mute button or the block button well yeah we <laughs> right we have a we have our, our most our most renowned hater on twitter met zach in person and they were perfectly fine he didn't unblock us but they were you know in person everything was fine so I think it just changes when you're face-to-face -face with someone. It's true. Didn't we send him our stickers? Uh, yeah, he, I think he, he probably threw them away. 
Yeah, we, we, we managed to get his address. We do. We'll send you some. Okay, good. Um, we managed to get his address and send him some of our uh, our sweet merch, which currently consists of just stickers, but they're pretty awesome stickers. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't it. I don't know. I I just I just when I like... look at it, I think you've got you know what percentage of people today actually you know accept the core tenets of Catholicism, you know, or you could even just boil it down like believe in the real presence, or you know attend mass and then on certain applications of the deposit of faith to the world um where there's not clear leadership coming from the church and hasn't been for decades we do disagree but it it seems to me hard to like write people off because they have some different ideas about application if there's so much we agree on and if statistically we're not a big part of the world right now you know like that's where, I mean, even you could narrow down to like, you know, I go to the Latin mass and when I see conflicts between Latin mass Catholics, I'm like, guys, we're like a percent of a percent of a percent. Like we, we can't be fighting each other. Like surely we could direct this towards the Masons or something. <laughs> yeah. I, gosh. Yeah. The, 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 the intra trad, uh, circular firing. Squad. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, you know, the other thing is, I mean, in my case, you know, a lot of your listeners, I don't know if you're plugged into this, and I wish I wish they wouldn't be plugged into it, but I'm about <laughs> to plug them into it anyway. But, like, there are there's a, a group of kind of young Catholics who are various forms of post-liberal and um, whom I've tussled with in the past. And the thing that frustrates me the most is that um, – you know, I'm actually more, far more sympathetic to their views than they think. And sometimes, like I said at the pre-show, when they kind of make, make memes making fun of me, as they call me one of the dads, I guess it, it's funny because I'm I'm, I'm 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 technically still a millennial, but I, I am a dad, so I guess and that's dadism, a, and, yeah. Dadism, dadism is one of the worst no things age. it can be. But the thing is, I I laugh at them at the memes they make. You know, um, I mentioned one. I don't know. Well, someone for all written, the listeners. Yeah. No, go. I want to hear this. Oh, just that someone had written, you know, George Weigel's next book. I'm I'm friends with George, and and, and he's been very kind to me. But, um, you know, that someone written George Weigel's next book is going to be lessons and lessons and lessons and lessons and hope. How Saurabh Amari t- saved my think tank. And I don't quite know what that means, but it's really funny. You know? Yeah, it is. Um, uh, well, with and, everybody and, but, listening, let's just get you on record. Are you or are you a neoconservative? I don't describe myself as a card-carrying neoconservative anymore, uh, and I've, uh, you know, I have. That's the my, that was my entryway into the conservative movement because it was in two thousand nine, and I saw there was a, there was a massive uprising in Iran. Um, mm-hmm. When I'm not a fan of the Iranian regime, and the you know the people who were. Uh, Oh, very vocal about it were the neocons, and then I sort of I read Leo Strauss, and and he oddly enough Leo Strauss, who's you know very complicated relationship with Catholicism, but he was very much an important way station for me on the way to Catholicism because he builds a very powerful case in his book Natural Right and History against 
relativism and historicism, that very thing we were talking about earlier, that, you know, there's no moral truth, everything is a condition of, of history and, and material circumstances and so forth. He sort of, in that book, in the first 20 pages or so, just utterly demolishes that kind of relativism. So, you know, I was like, plugged into the, you know, and he, and as Strauss for a lot of neoconservatives is a, is a, is a yeah, though he never took on the label, he's a sort of a major influence. And so that was my entryway into out of my very radical left, left-wing phase um, toward the right. And I'm still the man of the right, but I, I would now describe myself as a, as a Catholic conservative. And that means that um, I don't everywhere think that, you know, uh, liberal autonomy maximizing, whatever you want to do, kind of market capitalism is best. Now, often, often the free market uh, serves the common good, but plenty of places it doesn't. And society should be ordered to the common good, not the good of any sort of sector of it. Um, and so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in a complicated place now. I, I look at President Trump and I like some things he does. and don't like other things he does. Um, a lot of neocon, my neocon friends have gone fully sort of never Trump and I'm, I haven't gone there with them because although I, there are certain things about the man himself that are, are jarring and, and, and so forth, I, I understand the discontents with liberalism that led to his rise. Uh, likewise with Brexit, likewise with various populist and you know nationalist movements in, sure. in Europe. Um, so I think that my willingness to critique liberalism as such um, ha- has brought me to a point where I've now fully parted ways with my neocon friends, even though on X, Y, Z policy issues we may we may still agree, I wouldn't call myself of that camp. Um, I'm still a man of the right, but but a, a different sort of right. Well, yeah, it's, and it's yeah. almost, it's really hard for you to, anybody to grow more in their Catholic faith and not have their worldview and political views challenged, right? I think we've all kind of had that happen to us. The more we read the Church Fathers or read different books, the more we kind of question what we actually believe in politically and it it so it's perfectly natural for these things to change and evolve and um i would say it's actually dangerous if it doesn't so right and and uh, you know the a, a corner of of the catholic right that thinks that the church is you know perfectly at peace with with economic libertarianism let's say right uh you know, and the, well, and the, whoa, whoa, whoa. The, this is a family podcast. We can't say, we can't be saying words like liberty. Just kidding. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and 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 the Pope is somehow, you know, uncatholic for for some of his thinking on uh, on economics. Um, that I, I'm utterly not at peace with. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, uh, and that's yeah. I mean, the the more the more I read. Like you said, that the Church Fathers, more read more recent encyclicals, it becomes clear that even our our sort of most immediate two previous popes, uh, John, Saint John Paul II and, and Benedict XVI, are not, as some on the Catholic right imagine, just sort of unapologetic apologists for 
capitalism. Market, uh, capitalism and market democracies. And I see more and more continuity between the three men than discontinuity. Uh, the more I sort of study their their writings, um, well, it stretches back even further than that. I mean, the the church was um, pretty vocal in condemning these things when they were first being proposed um, to an extent. I mean, and you took that careful balance of trying to see what was what was good in them. Because I always, if you look up until you get up through the 20th century as kind of Christendom, properly speaking, is being dismantled, you can kind of see that the right was more accommodating of Catholicism in a sense, at least not openly hostile, but sometimes in a way that would twist it. And then trying to untangle all of that, I think is tricky for like Orthodox Catholics. Cause I mean, historically over the last hundred years, the right's been somewhat more, um, at least like I saw a joke. It was like Babylon B. It was like local Christian planning to vote for candidate least likely to outlaw his religion. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. like, well, okay, the right's not going to just ban Christ- or Catholicism like happened in, um, you know, uh, certain like parts of Eastern Europe and under communism, but they will, you know, try to co-opt it and they sort of frame it as like, well, the church is a, you know, a product of, of the West and our civilization that we had. And you kind of have to, like you said, you have to sort of put Catholicism first. Like you said, you're a Catholic. Yeah, it's the other way around is that the West is a product of, of the church, <laughs> not, not the other way around. And, and um, it just—I forgot what I was going to say. So go on. Sorry. Been through that. I mean, and it's probably a, you know, like you were talking about 2009 and the uprisings in Iran. I mean, it probably took a while to realize that that crew uh, is always for regime change. So they—they, I think they were recently talking about regime change in uh, China. So um, once you realize, like, oh, actually, they—it's just what they love to do. Uh, That's the thing. Is—is. The, the Arab Spring, separate from my thoughts, and the the the, out, the outcome of the Arab Spring was also very important in my reason. I mean, I'm still, you know, largely I would say an American honk because I think, um, the, you know, the world is a terrible Hobbesian place, and it probably needs a relatively benign superpower. Uh, you know, to be clear about that. But but the Arab Spring taught me that we don't need. No, no, no. Not you know, some places are fine as. You know, Emirates and uh, you know whatever political arrangement they have is going to be made far worse if we try to make them liberal democracies. Mm-hmm. You know, for for the well, thing, then, all that is good and holy, please stop trying to like unsettle things in Morocco and Bahrain. <laughs> um, you well, know yeah, I mean? I mean, people, it's like they think that okay, once we knock down Saddam Hussein or whoever, we're going to get uh, Angela Merkel, but. But in Iraq, like the, you have to look at what's the actual alternative. Uh, it was it was like, absolute folly, such right, folly. Right, like yeah. they're not gonna they're not gonna elect uh you know a, a you know Western thinking moderate liberal you know center right person. I mean, it's you have to look at okay, once we knock down this power structure, who, who is going to fill that vacuum, knowing that we can't impose. You know, uh, fonts that took us 500 years to develop on a part of the world that doesn't doesn't even want this. So yeah, I mean, yeah, and, and, and by the way, that you know that other p- forms of political order can can serve the good given the conditions in a particular society. Um, that, for example, 
you know, within the Arab world, given it's, you know, that it's steeped in, in tribes still, um, it's possible to achieve some degree of deliberation through tribal structures. Um, that's very clear, for example, in Libya, and that's, that's what kept Gaddafi in power. Uh, uh, in other words, that, 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 that the form of liberal democracy is not just the sort of universal end of all societies. It just, you know, and by the way, it happens to be in crisis here in the West now, um, for various reasons of its own making. Um, yeah, so please let's let's chill out with, uh, <laughs> you know, overthrowing um, yeah governments because they're authoritarian. When, if you look, if you look at how Catholicism spread through the Roman Empire and how it it took such a grasp on the parts of the world where it spread, um, it, it didn't have a revolutionary spirit. It it didn't overturn, you know. All these traditional structures, it essentially baptized it converted them. them. And, yeah, and baptized right. them. Yeah. And that's where it's always like you see so much of the interventions just obliterating some of these traditional cultures and the the systems that are in place. And I'm always thinking, like, you know, if you look at how the Catholics evangelized the world, they they those structures had been essentially preparing people to hear the gospel for you know hundreds of years. And there they go. They weren't just coming in and, you know, chopping off a few heads and installing a uh, a new government. By the way, this reminds me of Matteo Ricci um, in China. Um, it, it, my wife happens to be Chinese, and so I'm sort of interested in in the evangelization of, of China. And he, you know, for all intents and purposes, became a Chinese man. You know, from his, you know, from the way he dressed to learning the learning mandarin to learning uh their their ways of eating and and really immersing himself in in confucian scholarship to the point where he was recognized as a confucian authority by other chinese scholars which is mind-boggling you know he was this this jesuit um that seems to be a lot more winsome and persuasive um uh, in terms of you know evangelization than uh I wish we forms. could. I, I wish we had time to talk about the China deal because I would. I think it's like a topic of interest. No, I but... hope we don't. But I don't have any special expertise in it. But just since you mentioned the way that the church t- takes on the forms of other, you know, and, res- and respectfully incorporates it all, but baptizes them all, is a very fascinating process. Uh, yeah, and it, it becomes a very whole and complete. Like people, you know, become so intertwined. Because it it's not just this like top down imposition, and mm-hmm. you know it, it's lasting. There's always any kind of when there's revolution, there's always a backlash, and there's always you know let's go back to before that. And with with Catholicism, you know being able to you know eleven disciples convert the entire Roman Empire without a revolution is is always something you know for me that it continues to be a source of fascination and just a reaffirmation of the truth of the faith. Mm-hmm. Miraculous. The book is From Fire by Water, My Journey to the Catholic Faith. When you are listening to this podcast, that means it's out right now. And uh, Jeff Bezos is going through a divorce, so please go to Amazon and buy this book because Jeff Bezos needs all the help he can get. Oh, and Sorab, too. He needs the money, too, but especially 
poor Bezos with his lack of billions and billions of dollars now. I need your dollar fifty, <laughs> yeah. everyone. Is there a yes. is there a be- or your local Catholic bookshop? Yeah, I was gonna say is or there your Catholic a Catholic bookshop or Ignatius Ignatius.com, BarnesandNoble.com, IndieBound if you want to support your local book ca- local books or independent books or anyway. Does uh, do one of those Amazon. help you more? They make no, they, 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 you know, I, I get the same royalty off everything. It doesn't matter. But um, we always make our guests blush by doing that. Like we were like, one of our people was like, don't bring up the stuff I sell. Because she was like making stuff and selling it. And as soon as we get in, we're like, by the way, buy all this stuff. But she's like, no, that's not what this is about. <laughs> so, oh. We're, right. we're, no, we're, I'm for, I'm not I'm not that modest and <laughs> buy the book, guys. Buy a few copies. You, on tw- on Twitter at Sorabamari, right? That's your it's just your at name. S O H R A B like Bravo, A H M like Mary A R I. All right, this has yep. been. If you if you unblock him because you listen to us, be sure to tweet all of us and tell us because we want to know. Yeah. Thank no, you, gentlemen. This has been great. Thank you. Thank you.